0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always. Welcome to the podcast. So this is part two of a multi-part series dealing with the 2020 National Electrical Code. If you missed part one, we talked about a 30,000-foot view of definition changes in part one, two, and three of Article 100. Uh, Again, yes, part three is new to the 2020 NEC, which is a collection of all of your um, hazardous locations, classified location information definitions are all now bundled right there. So it's an easy source for all those definitions. There's a bunch of new ones. um, And so if you didn't listen to the first uh, uh, part one here, go back and listen to it because we kind of talk about definitions and they're critical to understand definitions. Uh, Next thing we're going to look at in this episode is we're going to look at Article 110, which is requirements for electrical installations. Uh, We're going to look at some of the changes that have taken place here and cover them fairly quickly because there's not a lot of them in 110, so we're kind of going to cover those pretty quickly. Uh, The first change that we're going to look at, uh, again, is just a clarification change in 110.5, which is conductors. Um, It used to have the word normally in there. In other words, it said conductors normally used to carry current. Well, normally is not a word that we're allowed to use in the NEC based on the manual of style that NFPA puts out so subtle change, just remove the term normally, doesn't need it, it says conductors used to carry current, good enough Um, and it says it shall be a copper aluminum and what we've added is or copper clad aluminum uh, which is in a previous code cycle it didn't mention copper clad aluminum but it did have an informational note that said hey go look at 310.14 about copper clad aluminum didn't make much sense if you didn't list it up here under the conductors, right? So didn't need that informational note now. That's gone. And we've added copper clad aluminum up inside of the parent text here. Uh, The thing to remember also is if you watched part one, we now do have a definition of what copper clad aluminum is. And I just want you to know that even though it's copper clad and it's no longer considered a dissimilar metal to copper because of the cladding, means you can mate copper to copper clad aluminum with no problems, no dissimilar metal issues. You still can't do copper clad aluminum to aluminum. That would still be dissimilar metals. Um, But the key is we know what it is now. It's a metallurgically bonded material copper is metallurgically bonded to the aluminum it's still an aluminum core so it still has the ampacity values that are very much synonymous with 31016's ampacity tables so um, again no change in that except for just adding it in here like it should have been all along if we're going to allow this conductor in the code then it really should be under conductors at 110.5 so that's all it did and you no longer needed the informational note to make that clear anymore so that's just a subtle change not a big deal uh, but just wanted to you know kind of make you aware of it as we kind of move through some of these, these changes that are taking place. Uh, also down in 110.14, which is electrical connections, you also will see inside of the body of the code language, you see where it used to say copper and copper clad aluminum when it came to examples of dissimilar metals. Well, they aren't dissimilar metals because of the metallurgic bonding of the copper to the aluminum. You can go copper to copper clad aluminum and not be considered dissimilar metals. Uh, Important for terminations also, if you have purely copper-only terminations. Uh, So it's it's to understand that copper to copper clad aluminum isn't a dissimilar metal connection, just so you know. Um, But, you know, it it just had to make it clearer. But aluminum to copper clad aluminum is still obviously dissimilar metals in the applications, okay? So just wanted some clarity there to make it totally clear. That way we have no confusion at all. Uh, The next one that I noticed is a significant change to me uh, because I spent a lot of time in the 2017 code trying to answer questions about 110.14d when it came to the installation and the torquing requirements. Well, in the 2020 code, we removed the term installation, and now we just call it 110.14d Terminal Connection Torque. And it's no different than it's ever been. You know, 110.3b means that you have to torque something in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions. And if you didn't have those instructions, then we had the benefit of going to Informative Annex I, and that regurgitates the information under UL Standard 46A, 46B. And in lieu of not having anything from the manufacturer, we could use these torquing values. Now, the most significant change here is that in the 2017 code we required a calibrated torquing tool, and that caused great confusion through inspectors and jurisdictions? And do we do? How do we verify this? And do we have to verify every termination? Well, there is some element of trust there. We have to assume that the electric contractor understands torquing requirements 110 3B has been around forever. The manufacturers put a torquing value in their equipment on their lugs for a reason. And we would hope that everybody follows that. It's just a prudent thing to do and a good installation and the longevity of that installation. However, we do know that people don't always follow those instructions. So then came the torquing requirements in 110.14 in the 2017 code to kind of clarify what we already knew in 110.3b. The... The way that it explained it made it difficult, that calibrated talking tool, how is the jurisdictions gonna do this? We used to talk jurisdictions into getting an affidavit if the electrician said he used this tool and you verified the tool and they gave you an affidavit, you're good to go. It's on them if something goes wrong. It takes the liability out of the inspector and all that kind of stuff. Now. In the 2020 code, it simplified it even more. It just gave it the approval of the HJ to accept whatever means. There's other types of things like a shear bolt or breakaway style devices that sometimes some manufacturers will send with it that goes onto a wrench or socket, and when it gets to a certain value, it shears off, and then that's the set value, and that's what you use, and you you throw it away. There's some that are reusable. Uh, Or you could still use a calibrated torquing tool. Um, But what the code says now, in the 2020, it's going to say, and this is 110.14d, it's terminal connection torque. It says, tightening torque values for terminal connections shall be as indicated on the equipment, I'm paraphrasing, but it says on equipment, or in installation instructions provided by the manufacturer. Uh, An approved means shall be used to achieve the indicated torque value. Now when we say approved means, again, It's whatever the inspector is willing to accept. That inspector might say, you know what, I like the torquing tool, it was accurate, and I ensured that you didn't over-torque it or under-torque something, and you were gonna be held accountable by some affidavit that says, did you torque everything to the values written by the manufacturer or whatnot? Yes, I did, Mr. Inspector. Okay, sign this, file it away, you're good to go, okay? The weakest link in failures is determination. The, the conductors typically just don't go bad. You have issues. It's usually the lack of torque or too loose or too tight or damaging the conductor at torquing. So that was the whole effort here. So I also get a lot of questions from people from the you know wiring cable industry. They'll call me and say, Paul, what's the recommended torquing value for your wire? And we don't give that information. It's not our lug. We don't want you to damage our wire. So what we're going to say is you need to torque it in accordance with the manufacturer of the lug or the equipment's values. Okay? That's what we're going to recommend. We're not going to give you a value as a manufacturer. We're going to tell you to do it in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions, a la 110.3b. But here we can also point to 110.14 and say that the approval has to be from the jurisdiction. And again, we're given... In the new code here, we're given informational note one, informational note two, and informational note three. And what it's saying in informational note one, it's saying examples of approved means of achieving the indication torque value, or the indicated torque value, uh, include torque tools or devices such as shear bolts or breakaway style devices with visual indicators that demonstrate that the proper torque has been applied. It no longer says anything about calibration. Most of the calibrated torque tools, the torque tools I get, come with a calibration sheet. Uh, But it's not asking about it. But you still have to meet the inspector's approval and what they're going to accept. Hopefully, they don't get really strict on this. Uh, But as long as you have a torquing tool that gets you to about that value uh, and then it snaps or stops or whatever, then you're going to be acceptable. It's that over-torquing that we're really worried about, or that under-torquing, where it's a loose connection, and under load, an arc can take place, is what we don't want. And over time, uh, you've got this heat buildup due to this arc, all right? So we don't want to do that. So you've got this method here, note one. Now note two, again, informational note, says, you know what? The equipment manufacturer can be contacted to get these torquing values. Um, if it's not indicated on the equipment, call the manufacturer. Uh, and if you can't get a hold of the manufacturer, then we're going to let you use the information that's in form of Annex I of the NEC, which regurgitates what's in UL Standard 486A, 46 b uh, And that is a standard for safety wire connection uh, connectors, uh, provides torque values in the absence, in the absence of a manufacturer's recommendation. So you can't reach the manufacturer for some odd reason. And I'm telling you, from a manufacturer standpoint, you can reach us anytime. It just, we can't help you with torque values. You know what we're going to say. We're going to say, torque it in accordance with the manufacturers of the equipment you're terminating our wire onto. Uh, and that's what we're going to say. Um, and then, of course, you've got note three, which is saying, you know what? Additional information on torquing and thread connections and terminations can be found in section 8.2. 11 of NFPA 70B. This is a sister document to NFPA 70, which we're talking about today. It's the NEC. So you've got this 70B, uh, which is the recommended practices for electrical equipment maintenance document. Okay, so you can go to that as a good reference document as well. Okay, so just a little change. Um, and we're going to really leave it up this at this point to the AHJ because they are the approved means. They're the ones that are going to approve it. Okay, so... That's where we're going to leave it at that. Uh, The next one we're going to look at is a change in 110.21, which is the marking requirements. And this has to do with reconditioned equipment. Now, there was a big debate Uh, at the CAMS that we just had in San Antonio uh, about the argument of a definition of reconditioned, which is in the code. If you go look at our part one of this series on 2020 uh, NEC, you're gonna see that we talk definitions, article 100, that there is a, a definition of reconditioned equipment but what's more significant in this rule, and not the fact that it's reconditioned equipment, and you got to put the name, the trademark, or other descriptive markings by which organization is responsible for giving this reconditioning of this equipment, uh, because they can be so that they can be identified quickly, uh, as long with the date that the reconditioning actually took place. But one of the efforts here was to say, you know what, the original listing is no longer valid because you're getting a reconditioned listing. So what they want you to do is literally remove the original listing that's on the product and put the reconditioned mark on there or the label on there. Uh, And there was great debate of that. Uh, Even some individuals that formerly worked at UL, which has a lot of intimate knowledge with this, really had a lot of heartburn with this because he says that, you know what? You need to know what the original listing is to know whether or not the reconditioned listing is following along the same lines. The problem is... Once it's evaluated and it gets its original listing, that was the intent of the product. When you're getting something reconditioned, I don't know that at that point you're worried about somebody using the original listing improperly. I don't know that that's a big concern, but it was certainly argued that way. And so now what they're saying is, in reconditioned equipment shall be identified as reconditioned and the original listed mark removed. Okay. So that's what has to take place. Now, It goes on to say, approval of the reconditioned equipment shall not be based solely on the equipment's original listing. Well, the argument that the gentleman who argued against this could proffer is, wait a minute, it says, shall not be solely based, so that's inferring that I'm going to use some kind of basis on its original listing, but if you remove it altogether, I got nothing. So, I don't know. But that's what the code's saying in 2020 right now. You're going to remove that original mark in in lieu of the new reconditioned equipment mark, okay? So that's your change um, for 110.21A2 when it deals with reconditioned, okay? The next one we're going to deal with is a working space. Uh, I guess it's really... It's about large equipment and it's the egress to and exit from or whatever, or ingress and egress from the working space dealing with large equipment. So, the working space in the National Electrical Code is established by 110.26A. You got A1 for the depth, you got A2 for the width, and you got A3 for the height. But when you have this large equipment, you need to have entrance to and egress from this working space. And so there was a change in here, and the real change or the real genesis of this change was to make it clear that if this piece of equipment had doors on it, and you open these doors, that they're not to impede the entry to or egress from the actual working space that you established in 110.26A, 1A2A3, all of that. You can't have these doors Open up into it and potentially have a condition where you impede the ability for somebody to safely get out of this equipment's space. Okay, so that's a change that took place in the 2020. So if the equipment has doors that open up and it will impede the entry to or egress from this workspace, then you've got a problem. So you're gonna have to look at that design. Okay, so that was introduced into the 2020 National Electrical Code for this cycle. But we're not done. We're not done. Because in the process of 2020, it also incorporated something else. And that is item number two. So not only do we have the retention of the land, and I'm gonna read it so that you can get a flavor of this change in 110.26 C2 for the large equipment. And what we're talking about is the requirement to have an entrance, to and egress from the required working space and its dimensions, 24 wide and six and a half feet high at each end of the working space if it's large equipment and what constitutes the requirement to have these entrance and egress from at each end of it, okay, of that working space. And let's look at the two. The first one is no different than we had before. For equipment rated 1,200 amperes or more and, and over six feet Why? No change there. What the addition is added here is number two, and it says, for service disconnection means installed in accordance with 230.71, and we all know that 230.71 is the maximum number of disconnects, and we can have up to six disconnects. We refer to it as uh, the, the six switch rule, or six disconnect rule, or switch six throws, or whatever. Um, It says now, it says, for service disconnection means installed in accordance with 230 to 71, where the combined ampere rating, okay, so if you have multiples, and you have a combined ampere rating of 1,200 amperes or more, and over six feet wide, okay, so you could have a combined, it means you're going to literally add them up, and if the rating is more than six, uh, 1,200 amperes or more, and... the the width constitutes over six feet wide, then you're going to have to have the one entrance egress to or egress from at each end of that working space, okay? Now, again, the big thing that added in this as well is if you happen to have that equipment and you open the doors on that equipment and it impedes the entry to or egress from any of that working space, that is not going to be acceptable, Okay. So that is significant with the change here because previously it didn't say anything about the, you know, directly about the combined ampere rating of multiple service disconnects allowed by 230.71. And now it kind of incorporates that into it uh, as well. So it could add up and their size overall uh, taken into account could constitute over six feet and require you to have that entrance and egress to and entrance from at either side of the working space. Uh, One on each end of it, okay? Uh, A key here is you simply cannot have the equipment doors, cannot impede that entry to or egress from that associated working space. So quite a significant change. I'm sure I'll have to generate a graphic for this to to make people aware of it, I'm pretty sure. Uh, The next one is illumination for this working space. Uh, previously, you couldn't have any automatic control means or control by automatic means not permitted at all. Uh, obviously, you don't want the lights to go out by, say, a motion sensor whatnot. And you're in there and you're you're out of view of the motion sensor and then you're in the middle of working on something and then the lights go out. Um, but they did lax it up a little bit here uh, in the 2020 code. Now, they say... It used to say you can't have any illumination control by automatic means shall not be permitted. Now, it says... Control by automatic means shall not be permitted to control all illumination within the working space. Okay? So it may control some of it, but it can't control all of it. That's the way I read it. Okay. Not so sure I like that at all, but you know, it is what it is, and there's justification for it, I guess, in the substantiation. So we're gonna go with it. Um so and so that is all of the significant stuff that we deal with, a thousand volts or less. Um, just some word changes um, that took place in the over thousand uh, that are in there, but nothing significant that I want to, you know, I want to talk about. Uh, again, the personnel door requirement for the over thousand just kind of made sure that you knew that it was listed fire exit hardware. Uh, it used to say just listed panic hardware or fire exit hardware, I believe, and now it says listed fire exit hardware. You know, just some subtle changes. If you're the folks that work on that over thousand. Uh, you've got some changes in there also terminals at 110.40 all we did now was change the references to the tables in 310.60 and whatnot have now been changed to 311 because that is where you're dealing with medium voltage applications in 311 so it just kind of moved all of those out of here 310 now is dedicated purely to thousand volts or less uh or i guess less than a thousand volts i guess you should say it um uh, and so, again, that's what we're dealing with uh, in here. So it's not a, other, a lot of other significant changes that I'm aware of. Of course, I guess that's generally what we say in the industry. But really, 310 is dealing with you know conductors that are rated up to and including 2,000 volts. Um, so I don't know why 1,000. But I, I think it's... When I think about it, I'm talking about what we use every day, like me and you. So we're dealing with 1,000 and less, the 600-volt applications. But in reality... Um, 310 is dealing with uh, general requirements for conductors rated up to and including 2,000 volts. This is what that is. The 311, which you'll have to see, is a new uh, article uh, in the National Electrical Code, and that's dealing with medium voltage conductors and cables. So in that scenario right there, those are the ones that we're going to deal with that are going to be at the voltages that are greater. So... So for clarity, when we're dealing with 311, we're really, really dealing with the ratings, single or multi-conductor, solid dielectric insulated conductors or cables, rated at 2,001 volts and up, including 35,000 volts, okay? So that's what we're dealing with. It So so that's what the scope of 311, so that's medium voltage conductors and cables. um, so it's 2001 and greater, up to 35,000, and then of course, what well, me and you and most of us that deal with this are familiar with, and that is 310 is going to deal up to, up to 2,000. But as I said, in most of this, we're going to deal with things that are under a thousand. That's mostly what we deal with, right? So I mean, me and you, electrician, generally. Now I'm not talking about you, utility guys. I'm not talking about you guys that are doing. Uh, uh, power production facility for a campus that might be dealing with those high voltages. I get it. I'm just talking about the general electrician that's going out there wiring buildings and houses, and we're dealing with the 600-volt applications. Uh, But 310 does include conductors up to uh, 2,000-volt rating, okay? So there's no confusion on that. All right, that's pretty much it for 110. I don't have a whole lot extra to add to that, so, um, again, there'll be more details and changes in my series that's coming out. You can purchase that, it's, uh, you can do an annual purchase where you get it sent to your email every month, uh, or you can do it, when it comes out, it'll be available individually for purchase if you want. Individually, you get a better deal if you do the annual, obviously. Um, and we go in a little more details, and of course, graphics were necessary. A lot of these early ones, we're not gonna need graphics, but when graphics are necessary, you'll be graphics to help depict the change and make it more clear uh, so that you understand it. Um, so hopefully you got something out of it. we're next, we're going to move into, uh, chapter two, uh, and we're going to move into article 200 and see what changes we got there and kind of move through it a little bit, uh, and talk about what's coming in the 2020 national electrical code until next time, folks, stay safe. God bless. looking bright